A word of warning, this episode contains detailed descriptions of violence. Anybody heard of an FI card, field identification card? When the police pull you over, when you're 13, 12, 10, 14, 15, whatever age, what they're going to do is, because of the area I'm at, I'm hanging, I'm standing there, drinking, smoking, whatever I'm doing. Nobody told me that when the police pull up, they're going to put us all in the hood. They're going to get all of our names. They're going to take a picture of you. And you're now going to be documented as a gang member, a known gang member, whether you were from there or not. Welcome to Afterlife, Season 2 of Gray Area. I'm Julie Reynolds Martinez, and that's Gilbert Bayo in his new role as a motivational speaker for youth. For this entire season, we're following Gilbert, a man who found unexpected freedom after a life sentence. If you're just joining us now, be sure to go back and listen to the previous episodes. In our last episode, Gilbert had found love in his life, even behind bars, and he was continuing to build his relationship with his now teenage daughter, Marlena. That's when he learned that his younger brother, Manny, was killed, shot by a cop. I'm not retaliating. Now I just gotta be there for my family and I need to keep going. So that's what I did. Whatever happened, I'll find out when I come home. In prison, Gilbert was helpless to find out more than the cursory, and it turns out mostly inaccurate, details from the superficial news reports about his brother's death. But we dug into the records and found out a whole lot more about the Los Angeles County deputy who killed Manny Borrego. This episode is a little different from our previous ones. We think an understanding of the culture of the LA County Sheriff's Department that overshadowed Gilbert's family gives important context to this story. As a child, Gilbert and his siblings were taken from their home in a sheriff's patrol car when Gilbert was delivered to the infamous McLaren Hall. Gilbert was arrested by sheriff's deputies when he committed the crime that brought him a life sentence. And then, in 2018, his younger brother Manny was shot by an L.A. County deputy. Manny was killed two years before George Floyd's murder ignited the nation and changed the conversation around police and criminal justice reform. Manny's shooting got little attention in the media or even from local activists. But his death was yet another example of the long-standing pattern of violence between police and young people of color on the streets. Why? Step out of the car. You can turn around. Put your stuff down. Um, I... Put your purse down. Put your camera down. I don't want to put my camera down. I'm scared. That's the voice of Los Angeles County Sheriff's Deputy Bradley Dietz. He was recorded by a local resident in 2014, four years before Dietz shot Gilbert's brother. Veronica Tomas, a community activist in El Monte, California, filmed him when deputies pulled her over for allegedly running a stop sign. According to Tomas, and as partly shown in her video, Dietz pulled her from her car after she started filming him and detained her in a patrol car for half an hour before giving her a ticket and releasing her. But there's a lot more to this deputy, who once called himself Dirty Dietz on his Facebook page, according to photographer and blogger Carlos Miller. 
We found him under Deputy Dog on his Twitter account. There's an old rebel and a southern deputy back there that think this is the real civil war. Dag nabbit, deputy dog, you told me the civil war was over. Shoot him now and ask him later. Don't believe the cotton-picking traitor. Give him 20 years and bread and water. We tried contacting Dietz through his attorneys, but we didn't receive a response. So why and how did Dietz kill Manny? The initial news reports were brief and conflicting. The first day the media put out that my brother was at a, what they called a trap house, buying drugs at a dope house. He had a backpack that had a kitchen knife in it. He was coming out of the house with a female and the police pulled up and ordered him to, to stop, get down or whatever they told him and that he took off running and they shot him. And then a couple days later, the newspaper reported that they ordered him to get down, that him and the female sat at the curb, and while the police were detaining him, that he got up, pulled out a kitchen knife out of his backpack and tried to attack the police officer and that's when the police officer shot him. So I was like, so which one is true? I'm relying on those reports, so I still didn't 100% know what happened. The Los Angeles County DA's office investigated the shooting. Here's how then District Attorney Jackie Lacey's office summarized what happened, a narrative that's quite different from the initial news reports. On March 18th, 2018, at approximately 8.40 a.m., Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department Temple Station received a call for service from Pete G regarding trespassing at a vacant property belonging to his family. Pete arrived to check on the property and noticed there was a hole in the chain-linked fence that surrounded the property, and one of the doors to the property was left open. So this guy Pete gave the DA a statement saying he went back outside and called the Temple Sheriff's Station, asking for officers to come to the scene. And then a woman walked out of the building, he said, and he asked her what she was doing there. I'm homeless. I slept there, was the reply. For some reason, the dispatcher announced this to patrol officers as a possible burglary, a much more serious crime than trespassing. While waiting for deputies to arrive, Pete noticed the woman leave the property. He called Temple Station a second time to update them. Two officers, Dietz and Deputy Vu Bui, arrived at the scene separately. Dietz got there first. Here's more from the DA's summary. Upon arriving at the location, Dietz noticed a man, later identified as Manuel Borrego, sitting on the north curb of Durfee Avenue. Because of the close proximity between Borrego and the location for the service call, Dietz attempted to contact him. According to Deputy Bui's statement, as he was driving toward the location, he heard Dietz broadcast over the radio that he was going to talk to Manny on the sidewalk. As Bui pulled up, he saw Dietz walking toward Manny. Bui got out of his car and he said he saw Manny standing in the middle of the street, facing Dietz and holding a red knife in his hand. Bui said Dietz ordered Manny to get down. Here's more from Dietz and Bui's account to the DA. It appeared Borrego was going to comply and go to the ground, as he briefly leaned forward and placed his hands near the ground. However, 
Approximately one to two seconds later, Morego took a partial step forward, pushed off the ground by using his left hand, and took two to three steps in Dietz's direction, closing the distance between them while extending the blade of the knife towards Dietz. As this was happening, Borrego had a blank look on his face. Dietz fired approximately three rounds at Borrego, striking him. Bui heard Borrego groan briefly before falling to the ground while still holding the red knife in his right hand. Dietz and Bui continued to give Borrego commands to drop the knife, however, he did not respond. Bui approached Borrego and kicked the knife out of Borrego's right hand with his left foot. After kicking the knife away, Bui searched Borrego and checked his body for wounds. Dietz requested paramedics to assist with treating Borrego. He was dead before paramedics arrived. The DA's report said Dietz fired three times. An autopsy showed Manny was struck by two of the 45 caliber bullets. One entered his left jaw and neck, traveling from front to back. The fatal shot struck his left shoulder, also moving front to back, downward and to the right. Photos of the scene show two knives that appeared to be several yards away, on opposite sides of Manny's body. Toxicology reports showed Manny had, quote, 0.68 micrograms per milliliter amphetamine and 7.3 micrograms per milliliter methamphetamine in his blood. Manny would likely have been very high on meth and, according to his family, was likely already paranoid before police arrived. As Gilbert says, Manny was also terrified of going back to prison. No witnesses had placed Manny in the building, and he wasn't trespassing. There were no eyewitnesses except Dietz's fellow officer, and there was no mention as to whether the sheriff's department or the DA investigators tried to obtain any video surveillance footage that might have shed light on the shooting. The DA took Dietz and Bui's word and concluded that Dietz acted in self-defense. That finding was no surprise. Before L.A. County D.A. George Gascon took Jackie Lacey's place in 2020, officers were rarely held to answer. However, on November 10th, just as we were editing this podcast, a sheriff's deputy was charged with assault in the fatal shooting of a suicidal man armed with a knife. In March, another deputy was charged with manslaughter. Former L.A. County Sheriff's deputy has been charged with the fatal on-duty shooting of unarmed 24-year-old Ryan Twyman. The L.A. County DA's office says 37-year-old Andrew Lyons is set to be arraigned on one felony count of voluntary manslaughter and two counts of assault with a semi-automatic firearm. Lyons is accused of getting his rifle and shooting into the car after it stopped moving. So who is Dietz? As we dug into his history, we discovered that he, too, has a criminal record. But unlike Manny, Dietz was operating under the color of law when he committed his crime. That's an expression the legal system uses to describe police who abuse the power of their office to deprive citizens of their rights. Dietz's Facebook profile shows a man, presumably Dietz, with his face painted like a skull. The banner photo shows the back of a shirt that reads, Marine, noun, a person who kills shit you can't. He worked out of the Temple Sheriff's Station, which is alleged to be the home of one of LA's infamous deputy gangs, the Tasmanian Devils. In a 2021 report by the Rand Corporation, researchers interviewed LA Sheriff's deputies, including some from Temple Station. Deputies said that members of the Tasmanian Devils are, quote, 
likely still employed by the department, but do not seem to be actively adding members. Members of this gang, also called the Taz by deputies, are said to have a tattoo of the Warner Brothers cartoon Tasmanian Devil, sometimes with a Roman numeral V, indicating Temple Station's number 5. The Gray Area team actually obtained a Team Temple jacket with the Taz cartoon on it, and we saw a mug offered on eBay with the same image. The Taz is the least documented of LA County's 18 identified deputy gangs. They seem so obsessed with the imagery of, of tattoos, yet uh, I just don't see it. Well, well, no, we have one, the Tasmanian Devils, I think, Temple Station, yes. That's a Disney character. That was Los Angeles County Sheriff Alex Villanueva. We'll get back to him in a minute. We also have Yosemite Stan. It's also a very scary character, probably because he might trip over his mustache. We should get a Hello Kitty gang. What do you think about that? Although Villanueva dismisses the significance of tattoos among his deputies, a tattoo in gang cases like Gilbert's can often mean the difference between freedom and life in prison. So what exactly is a deputy gang? Gilbert spoke in episode 2 about the gang enhancement law that added 20 years to his life sentence. Penal code .186.22 so, anyone who willfully participates in a gang activities or joins together with members of a gang while carrying out a crime can be found guilty of violating gang enhancement laws. That means if you go steal something and they're going to sentence you to two years, now because you've been documented as a gang member, you're not going to get more time on top of that. You can get anywhere from six months to two years to 10 years to 20 years to 25 years to life added to your time. See, when I was 13 years old, nobody told me this. A gang is any group of three or more people that has a common name or identifying sign or symbol. Group of three or more people whose members have engaged in a quote, pattern of criminal gang activity, either alone or together. That's Cerise Castle, the groundbreaking journalist behind a 15-part investigative series and podcast called A Tradition of Violence, the History of Deputy Gangs in the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department. It was published in 2021 by the news website, Knock LA. You also might remember retired Lieutenant Roy Morales from episode two. He's an expert on California gangs. Now, there's tons of groups, there's tons of social groups within law enforcement, tons, that provide all that stuff, that provide the mentorship, that provide the guidance of how to um, get ahead in law enforcement, how to promote, how to do all that. Where these guys or these groups cross the line is when they start committing criminal acts. Here, Cerise is speaking at a 2021 public hearing of the LA County Sheriff Civilian Oversight Commission, part of an ongoing series of meetings convened to investigate the issue. Deputy gangs are just a symptom of a broken system. In the case of deputy gangs, we're talking about things like murder, rape, kidnapping, money laundering, falsifying police reports, and so on. There are at least 18 gangs in LASD. And that can include tattoos, that can include clothing. Three or more persons, I mean, you look at the penal code 18622, it clearly defines what a prison street gang is. When law enforcement start assaulting people that they've arrested, when they start throwing up a certain hand sign 
that's now perceived to be like similar to a street gang. You're now simulating the type of person that you're investigating and that you're eventually arresting. There's really no room for that. I strongly believe that there's no room for that. Litigation related to these deputy gangs has cost LA County at least $100 million, and all of that was funded by taxpayers. Deputy gangs are responsible for the death of at least 19 civilians here in LA County. All of the men that were killed by the deputy gangs were men of color, and four of them were in the midst of a mental health crisis. I spoke to Cerise recently to learn more about these gangs operating within law enforcement. I grew up here in the LA area, and from the time I was a small child, I can remember being warned about deputy gangs. And that warning always intrigued and confused me a little bit because it didn't make sense to me that the people that were coming into my school and discouraging children from joining neighborhood gangs and sometimes even demonizing other children just on the virtue of where they lived or who they were friends with as being criminal gang members, being told that those same people were in fact in gangs themselves, that didn't really sit right with me. And it was something that I wanted to find out more about. When you look at deputy gangs, they meet all of these standards. These gangs have unique logos, they have hand signs, and they are committing crimes that fall under the California Penal Code, um, talking about money laundering, uh, manipulation of evidence, filing false police reports, and even murder. Um, the only difference is that these gangs are funded by taxpayers, and they have the legal authority to take somebody's life. Gang members are in known gang areas. You can be placed in the Cal Gang system designed for law enforcement to track gang members. An 18 year old by the name of Andres Guardado was shot and killed by two deputy sheriffs that it is alleged were the expression is chasing ink, and that means they were trying to get a tattoo of a deputy gang. And in order to get a tattoo of a deputy gang, it's alleged that you need to kill someone. If you are a member of the sheriff's department and you are a person of color, it's alleged that you have to kill someone of your same ethnicity. And Andres was just a young kid working at an auto body shop and he was killed by two people that it's alleged did that in order to become members of a deputy gang called the Executioners. Those allegations actually came from another deputy sheriff during a deposition that he gave in a lawsuit where he alleged that he too was being targeted by these executioners because he did not go along with their criminal style of policing. Sean Kennedy chairs the LA County Sheriff's Citizens Oversight Commission. He and his students published a report called 50 Years of Deputy Gangs in the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department. Here he describes a 2022 law designed to give prosecutors better tools to go after law enforcement gangs. It changes the definition for deputy gangs. This, I think, sets aside the sheriff's major defense that the groups are not street gangs because 
the legislature specifically adopted a more appropriate and broader definition of law enforcement gang. I myself am skeptical of this law. To my knowledge, I do not think it has been used yet. This piece of legislation was written by Assemblymember Mike Gibson, who himself is a former police officer, and it was written with the assistance of current Los Angeles County Sheriff Alex Villanueva. Deputy gangs has become a political buzzword, and it's just like unicorns. Everybody knows what a unicorn looks like, but I challenge you, name one. I've identified over 400 people that are affiliated with deputy gangs. Getting back to Dietz, to be clear, we found no indication that Dietz was a member of the Tasmanian Devils or any deputy gang. In any case, Dietz did commit a very disturbing crime, assisting another deputy who pretended to be acting under legal authority. According to the DA's office, just seven months after shooting Manny, Dietz obstructed justice and lied to a Los Angeles police officer to assist a crime in progress committed by a fellow deputy from the Temple City Station. But if the tables were turned, we have to wonder if police might view this kind of conspiracy as, well, gang activity. What was the crime Dietz tried to cover up? an elaborate $2 million drug heist led by Dietz's Temple Station colleague, Sheriff's Deputy Mark Antrim. Back in October of 2018, the elaborate plot allowed him and six co-conspirators to steal half a ton of marijuana and $600,000 in cash from a downtown warehouse. Dietz's colleague Antrim had not only raided a licensed cannabis warehouse in Los Angeles, he and his co-conspirators forged a judge's search warrant, showed up in a marked department vehicle armed and in uniform, and falsely arrested and detained two male security guards and a female employee, essentially kidnapping and imprisoning them. Antrim wore his uniform and duty belt, and his partners in crime wore sheriff's deputy uniforms too, even though they weren't officers. So what was Dietz's role in all this? Dietz is not named in the federal case records, but actions that match his are described there. Here's what a DEA special agent wrote in an affidavit to a federal judge. During the robbery, which lasted approximately two hours, Antrim detained three employees working at the warehouse in the backseat of an official L.A. Sheriff's Department Ford Explorer. But before Antrim could handcuff them all, one worker managed to call L.A. police to find out what was going on. After all, the warehouse was not even in the Sheriff's Department's jurisdiction. When Los Angeles Police Department officers responded to a call for service at the warehouse, Antrim falsely represented that he was conducting a legitimate search. His partners in crime, meanwhile, ran out the back door, peeling off their L.A. sheriff's uniforms as they fled. When a skeptical LAPD officer asked to speak to Antrim's supervisor, Antrim played it cool and passed him his cell phone. The screen of the phone displayed a particular individual's name, who is in fact another L.A. Sheriff's Department deputy. 
According to the LAPD officer, the person on the phone claimed that he was Antrim's sergeant and that Antrim was working in an official capacity. We found corroborating details, like the date and location of Dietz's offense in state and federal court records and district attorney statements that leave little doubt that the deputy on the phone was Dietz. Here are the words of that DEA special agent again. I believe that the person on Antrim's phone falsely told the LAPD officer that he was Antrim's sergeant and that the defendant was at the warehouse on official business. After the LAPD officers left, Antrim's partners came back. They stole 1,226 pounds of cannabis, two safes, $615,000 in cash, and $30,000 in money orders. The total haul was valued at $2 million. And he and his cronies might have gotten away with the warehouse heist if the cannabis company's attorney hadn't called the Temple Sheriff's Station a few days later to ask why his client's warehouse was raided. An officer at the station, working in the Sheriff's Internal Criminal Investigations Bureau, became alarmed because there was no authorized drug raid that night. He contacted federal agents. The Drug Enforcement Agency and FBI took over the case. The robbery was captured by security cameras from 32 different angles inside the warehouse and by a GPS tracker on a rented Penske truck used to stash the hall in a storage locker, where yet another video camera caught the men offloading the goods. In other words, it was a slam-dunk case. Antrim faced life in prison and more than $10 million in fines. For the false arrests alone, he was charged with a federal crime called deprivation of rights under color of law, among four other felony charges. In all, seven co-conspirators were swept up in the federal case. And it turns out Antrim had committed at least four previous robberies of cash and drugs during unlawful searches, according to federal court filings. Dietz aided and abetted Antrim's conspiracy, lying to a fellow peace officer about an armed robbery and terrorizing of civilians while it was still underway. But his involvement wouldn't become clear for another year. Again, we did not find evidence that Dietz or Antrim were members of a deputy gang. But Antrim used his badge, uniform, and gun to threaten and rob citizens. He fabricated evidence. Dietz gave false statements to protect the conspiracy. Dietz, however, was not included in the sweep. The public was completely unaware of his participation in the crime, and he remains a free man. He has stayed on the force after the others were taken into federal custody and charged. But his story, and its impact on Gilbert and his family, isn't over. In our next episode, Gilbert's mother files a wrongful death lawsuit against Dietz and the L.A. Sheriff's Department as more becomes clear about this conspiracy among Temple Station deputies. Meanwhile, in 2018, the same year Manny died, California reformed its sentencing laws, and Gilbert unexpectedly gets a chance to come home. This episode was co-produced by Mara J. Reynolds and Gilbert Bale, with additional reporting by George Sanchez Tello. Austin Thielander read the DA's report excerpts, and Brian Barnhart read the special agent's words. The news clips were from Fox 11 Los Angeles and KTLA. 
If you want to read Cerise Castle's reporting on deputy gangs and hear her podcast, A Tradition of Violence, and it's absolutely worth a listen, please see the links in our show notes, and we'll be hearing more from Cerise in later episodes. We also have links to videos of the Civilian Oversight Commission's hearings and to the Rand and Loyola Law Reports on Deputy Gangs. You can check out all our episodes and show notes at grayareapodcast.com. That's gray with an A. And don't forget to listen to Season 1, where you can hear six stories of justice and redemption. And if you like this show, please leave a review and rating on Apple Music or wherever you get your podcasts. It helps us reach more people. The music for this episode is by Blue Dot Sessions, Lobo Loco, Ketza, and Nuisance. Thanks again to all the amazing artists at the Free Music Archive. Details are on our website. This project was made possible with support from California Humanities, a nonprofit partner of the National Endowment for the Humanities. Visit www.calhume.org. For Gray Area, this is Julie Reynolds Martinez, and this is Season 2 After Life. Absolutely nobody outsmarts old Tippity Dog. <laughs> <laughs>